Incoming transmission. Welcome. 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 This is True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Week by week, you'll hear the true stories behind the operations that have shaped the world we live in. True Spies. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. Suddenly we were surrounded by many soldiers, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40, and uh, someone hit me with a a rifle on my head. I was a bit uh, fuzzy. My doctor inclines himself uh, towards me and he whispers me in my ear, Shall we take them on? I'm Sofia DiMartino, and this is True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Exodus, part three. Adventure a la carte. March 1982, Sudan. Mossad officer Danny Lemour and his team are evacuating scores of Ethiopian Jews from the coast. In the middle of the operation, a company of Sudanese soldiers ambush the beach. And they shouted in Arabic, stop or we will kill you. The last of the transport dinghies is still leaving the shore. The entire mission is about to be exposed, leaving Danny and his crew facing life in Sudanese prison as a best case scenario. And one of the soldiers, he started running towards the boat with his Kalachnikov ready to shoot. He came to the shore, to the water edge. The boat was to our right, and then he saw the other boats who were still not far away from the shore, and you could see the fog the engines made. So before I could do anything, he shot. In this, the final part of True Spy's in-depth look at Operation Brothers, we'll hear how the Mossad conducted a mission unparalleled in the agency's history. The story I'm telling you is a real Zionist James Bond story. It's unique in the history of the intelligence uh, world because it's the first time I believe in the history of Africa that uh, Europeans took out Africans out of Africa, not to enslave them, but to free them. We'll hear from the agents that were there. One morning, I'm swimming back and I raised my head and I saw maybe 20 soldiers with guns. So I told myself, oh my God, that's it. (laughs) I'm exposed. And from the Jews that they rescued. It's a Muslim country. It's a very fanatic Muslim country. They don't imagine if they hear, you are a Jew, they can kill you. That's all. Neviat Resort, the Sinai Peninsula, 1981. Propping up the bar is the retreat's diving instructor, Ruby Viterbo. Nicknamed Beckenbauer after one of the world's best paid soccer players, Ruby carved out a reputation as one of the region's most successful divers. Overlooking the Gulf of Aqaba, though, the money and the dream is coming to an end. Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin 
has agreed to hand the Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt. Ruby and his colleagues are out. We already had the date of evacuation to Sinai. April 82 was the last day that we had to leave. Unknown to him, however, one of Begin's other highly classified projects is about to come knocking. Looking around the bar, Ruby spots two people he knows, sat with them as a third man. The two men motion Ruby over to their table and introduce the third. And he spoke to me in Italian because I'm Italian in origin. The man says he's from the Jewish agency. And told me that they want to smuggle some Jews from Africa. I didn't say when and where. And uh, they will need my expertise for two weeks. I'm a diving instructor and this is involved with uh, transferring some brothers from the beach to a boat by dinghies. So he asked me if I agree. Sure, Ruby responds. I'll do it. The man then introduces himself. I'm Danny Lamore, he says. When he mentioned Jews from Africa, immediately I connected. A friend of mine wrote a book, Black Brothers. So I brought the book and I said, Danny, you mean uh, this? Examining the book, Danny laughs. Operation Brothers, that's what we'll call the mission, he says, before telling Ruby someone will be in touch. Nobody talked about Mossad or anything, but uh, I knew. Ruby wasn't just another diving instructor. He was an ex-commando in the Shayatet 13, Israel's elite Navy unit. That's how he recognized the two men in the bar. They too were ex-Shayatet 13. Danny knew these were the caliber of people he needed. The common denominator was they all had the capacity to operate undercover in an enemy country with all that this means, you know, the mentality and the, the guts to do whatever was needed. Shortly after, Ruby and two other instructors he recommended are in Tel Aviv to be briefed. And they asked us to write in English a short curriculum vitae, CV. So I wrote, I was born and raised in KGB, KGB. Minutes after handing the form in, an official rushed over to Ruby. What is this, KGB? He shouts. It's Kibbutz Givat Brenner, Ruby replies, the name of his local kibbutz, a kind of collective community unique to Israel. This is the last time you make jokes with us. Ruby and the others are then put through a series of examinations, psychoanalysis, aptitude tests, exercise simulations. Looking at their results, the examiner tells Danny none of them are right for the job. They're too unpredictable, individualistic, strong-minded. That's exactly what I want, Danny replies. So, I was accepted. Danny gave us a small briefing. He said there is abandoned Italian holiday village and this will be our base for the next two weeks. Ruby and the other diving instructors are given basic cover stories and aliases. A Mossad agent checks their belongings for anything with Hebrew markings. The agent then tells them 
you are not Israelis anymore. Armed with fake passports, the team heads to Sudan, as does their boss, Efraim Halevi, one of the most senior officials in the Mossad. Almost uh, <laughs> ran over a camel. Danny, meanwhile, remained field commander while also becoming a Mossad department head, a dual role unprecedented in the history of the agency. Certain pockets of HQ were against running a diving resort as a cover story, however. Sending a team into an enemy country was one thing, they argued. Having them interact with large numbers of unknown, unvetted people as holiday resort personnel was quite another. They would likely not return, unless in a body bag. But Danny stood up to his superiors. When someone wants to find a reason not to do, you always find. Always. In this profession especially. The Jews needed urgent help, he said. The camps were rife with disease. Hundreds had already died, while rumors were spreading to the Sudanese police that many were disappearing in the middle of the night. The clock was ticking. More and more people were arriving to the camps. We needed to uh, upgrade the operation. Eventually, Danny convinces headquarters to let him use the resort. Nonetheless, Halevi wanted to check it out for himself. En route from Khartoum to the coast, some 900 kilometers away, Danny takes him and the rest of the team to see Gadaref camp. And uh, we saw the condition that they are living, the refugees, terrible condition. So this was to get us some uh, ambition, you know, to do the job. Eventually, the crew reached the coast and set eyes on the resort. It was five o'clock in the morning, just sunrise, you know. And we went up the hill and I saw this village and two lagoons, beautiful. The moment I saw this beautiful, deserted village, I told to myself, I would like to stay here as long as possible. But there's little time to relax. After one night, Ephraim Halevi, the ultimate head of the operation, was satisfied, wished the team luck and returned to Israel. The first seaborne evacuation was agreed, and it was only two weeks away. The team rigged the resort with communications and fitted a new generator, while Ruby charted a route around the reef and out of the nearby cove that would be the evacuation point. We organized ourselves, we get the fuel, the boats, everything was ready. Here was the plan. Danny, Ruby and the rest of the team would drive 900 kilometers from the resort inland to Gadaref camp. There, they would rendezvous with the committee men, hide the Ethiopian Jews in the lorries and make the return journey, all at night. Kids, old people, pressed like sardines, standing, not sitting. No toilet, no drinking, nothing. In the day, the convoy would retreat to a designated wadi halfway. Waiting several kilometers offshore was a large Israeli military freighter, the Bat Galim. Israeli Navy SEALs would launch fully armed Zodiac dinghies to pick up the Jews from the shoreline, bringing them back to the main ship over several trips. There were risks at every step. 
On the way down, by the way, we saw that there are 10 block roads. I mean, really, people with guns standing, checking. And the sea was often no less dangerous. Sudanese patrol ships scoured the coast at night, hunting for smugglers and pirates. Exposure at any point risked not just the lives of everyone involved, but also threatened to spark a major international incident. All at a time when the Israeli Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, was trying to improve ties with the Arab world. The signing of the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel is only the beginning. Tomorrow, with God's help, we shall lay the cornerstone. And on it, in the days and months and years to come, we shall build the edifice of peace. If this gets exposed that the Mossad is doing clandestine operation in an Arab country, this will create a lot of problems with all kinds of efforts that are being conducted to develop relations with the Arab countries. You have to calculate all the time the risk that you are taking. Content with the risks, however, on the night of November 21st, 1981, the team departed the resort and headed for Gadaref camp. Luckily, the roadblocks don't prove a problem. Each driver says they're traveling from the resort to collect supplies. He gave him some freebies, I don't know, some cigarettes, some drinks. We just waved to them and they opened the, the barriers without any problem. Once arriving at a quarry near the camp, the committee men of Ethiopian Jews organizing the groups appear. Takeli Makonan was one of them. So a lot of camouflage, a lot of covering, a lot of covering always. The youngsters are the, the last ones to come, but all the older, the, the children, the pregnant women, we have to pick them. Ruby and the team load them in. They were very quiet and we hit the road. Arriving at the wadi, halfway back to the coast, the convoy hides out for the day, where most of the teams see the Jews in daylight for the first time. I was a bit shocked because they looked in very poor condition and frightened. We didn't communicate, we couldn't speak Amhari or Swahili, a little bit English, nothing in Hebrew. But we felt uh, that we are, you know, we are doing something important. We are actually saving them from misery to the promised land. Upon opening the lorry, some of the Jews think they've already reached Israel. They just kissed the ground because they thought this is the end of the journey. They didn't know that we still have to go with a boat and everything. Setting off again that night, the convoy arrives at the beach. Several camouflaged dinghies appear out of the darkness. Most of the Ethiopian Jews had never seen the sea before, let alone been on a boat. But it's not only them that are shocked by the scene. One of the commandos, confusion strewn across his face, turns to Ruby and says, they are black. Do you really think they are Jewish? So I laughed at him and said, what do you care? With the sea channel to the Bat Galim clear, the commandos ferry their cargo back to the freighter. Once there, they're hoisted on deck, en route to the promised land. 
Over the next 48 hours, the exercise is repeated without a hitch, with another load of Ethiopian Jews delivered to the freighter. By daybreak, the Bat Gelim was already far out at sea. A few days later, it arrived at Sharm el-Sheikh, then still in Israeli hands, untouched. Some 264 Ethiopian Jews disembarked to a rapturous reception from several high-ranking Israeli military and intelligence officials. The head of the Mossad, Yitzhak Hoffi, was there himself. The plan had worked. I was in charge of the radio communication, sending messages, decipher messages, and I got a message from the Prime Minister through Ephraim Alevi. The Prime Minister is very happy and gives you all his congratulations. He will meet you when you come home. For Danny's team, the two-week mission was over. But Ruby had other ideas. At this moment, I looked at Danny and I took him aside that nobody will hear and I told him, Danny, I would like to stay. What? Danny says. Are you crazy? There's no water, no electricity, no food, nothing. And Danny said, I cannot get permission for this. I said, you don't need to. It's just between you and me. Danny agrees and doesn't tell headquarters. The other guys looked at me and thought, well, 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 he's out of his mind. But Danny also saw an opportunity in keeping Ruby in Sudan. Back in the military barracks, when he first operated with Faraday around Gadaref camp, Danny had met the head of the secret police, a man by the name of Mohammed. I want to keep this relationship alive. And doing so was becoming crucial. For in his last meeting with Mohammed, the conversation had taken an unusual turn. I brought with me a bottle of the best cognac. So he drank, and he drank a lot. Mohammed then asked Danny, tell me, have you known Jews? He said, of course, Jews are everywhere. <laughs> what are they like, the Jews? Mohammed replies. He said, like any other people, you know, they're, they're bad, they're good, they're ugly, they're beautiful. Do you know there are black Jews? Mohammed then asked. He said, what? Nah, you must be mistaken. Yes, there are, Mohammed says, before adding, They come from Ethiopia, and they come into camps, and they disappear because some Zionists come here and they take them because they need cannon fodder to their army. Danny starts to think he's been burned, that Mohammed knew it was him. I was expecting any time a door to open and, you know, no, he just wanted to know if I knew. And when I said I don't, he says, uh, well, you should know. But then, Mohammed said something else. And we will find these people, taking them out. Maintaining his cover, Danny thanked Mohammed for his hospitality and left. But now he knew that cutting ties would attract suspicion. And more than that, Mohammed had even introduced Danny to his brother, the head of the Sudanese Navy himself, General Youssef. So, Danny takes Ruby to meet him. He had developed a relationship with the former owners of the resort, the ones who built it. The general tells them that every Thursday, the previous owners had brought him fresh lobster. Now, the lobsters in that area, believe me, 
They look like super lobsters, you know. If you bring me lobster every Thursday, then maybe I can help you in return, the general adds. Knowing that the general would now be on side, Danny and Ruby agreed. With the relationship maintained, Danny left for Israel to update HQ and plan another evacuation. Ruby stayed at the resort where, with the help of several Sudanese workers, he renovated everything, installing electricity, water and beds. Back in Israel, Danny hired another member to the team, a Mossad agent called Gad Shimron. He found me in the corridors of the headquarters of the Mossad. He said, I know you have an operational background, you, you speak Arabic, you have some uh, marine background, you are perfect for this mission, I need you. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. With headquarters now satisfied with the operation, the date was set for another evacuation. The Bat Galim's capacity was also doubled, now able to accommodate over 400 rescued Jews. In early 1982, Danny, Gad and the rest of the team returned to Sudan. We specifically planned to do it on Friday. And when there is very dark, very little moon, dark Friday. So actually, we invented Black Friday. Several days after arriving at the resort, the team convoy to a designated point outside Qadaraf. The second evacuation is live. We had this uh, very long journey, 900 kilometers. Upon arriving at the rendezvous point, some 15 kilometers away from the camp, the convoy waits for its cargo to appear. It was very cold, you know, the desert at night, in winter, very cold. And then... We heard a whistle, and all of a sudden, 250 people from darkness, you know, came toward us. Young people, old people, mothers, babies, whatever you want. Quiet, unbelievable quiet. 
the team load the Jews into the convoy and set off. After 24 hours, they arrive at the beach and transfer the refugees onto the Zodiac dinghies. Then they did the whole exercise again, another 1,800 kilometers. After the second trip, the team was exhausted. We didn't really uh, rest. But over the radio, the commander of the Bat Galim offshore sent Danny a message. I still have a lot of space on this boat. Go again. Danny put it to a vote. Could they do another 1,800 kilometer round trip? All but one of the team voted to go again. One of the crew, a doctor by trade, dispensed benzedrine to keep each driver awake. Then, for the third time, the convoy started up again. Arriving at the Daref camp, another load of Jews are hauled into the lorries. But on the return leg, even the benzedrine can't keep everyone going. I felt I was falling asleep, so I called one guy and I told him, look, come drive. I will sit near you, I will sleep 15 minutes or something. Almost immediately after falling asleep, however, Danny is woken by a loud crash. Sometimes those uh, checkpoints, those roadblocks, they would put barrels and he noticed uh, the barrels when he was almost on top of it. He went into the barrel and there was a lorry coming. He went into our car and then there was like a chain uh, accident. One by one, the convoy crashes. The Sudanese troops stationed at the roadblock circle the vehicles. Danny assembles the crew outside the convoy, giving them a simple order. We do not allow them to see who we are taking in our vehicles, okay? And if a soldier he finds out, then he will not uh, be able to tell this story to anyone. We will take care of them. One of the soldiers approaches the middle lorry. I went towards him and started to bullshit him, you know, blah, 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 but he continued, he wanted to see. Danny's crew, armed only with knives, prepare themselves to take out a platoon of Kalashnikov-wielding Sudanese soldiers. We knew what to do. The soldier reaches up towards the lorry's tarpaulin, ready to look inside. Danny tries to stall him one last time. They um, appreciate very much toilet paper, and they gave him toilet paper. The soldier stops. And uh, at the last moment, he said, okay, okay, okay. And so he kept his life. The crew patch up the vehicles, jump back in and set off. The Ethiopian Jews had not made a sound throughout. After safely delivering them to the Bat Galim, the commander on board counted his cargo. Some 350 had been rescued. Headquarters and Prime Minister Begin were overjoyed. And again, I was in charge of communication, got another, uh, you know, blessing. I mean, uh, well done, well done from everyone. HQ authorizes further evacuations. The naval operations were working very well. The third happens shortly after, in March 1982. The convoy picks up its cargo as planned and eventually arrives back at the coast. Danny orders Gad to take up an observation post in the corner of the cove, surveilling the evac point with night vision goggles. 
And as Danny and the convoy were getting closer, from my observation point, I saw movement around. Gad radios Danny. We've got company. And then tells me there are soldiers. Danny orders one of his men to stall the troops. So he went. And, he, you know, he gave them cigarettes or whatever. And they turned around and they left. Danny's instincts begin to kick in. I thought uh, it cannot be. I mean, two soldiers walking in the middle of the night. And they, they cannot be alone. Must be others. He asks the Navy SEALs commander to bring all available Zodiacs onto the beach immediately. The Jews are loaded in without life jackets or safety belts. Things started moving very quickly. Gad radios Danny again. Danny, I don't like it. There's a movement around us, like as if we are in Trafalgar Square on New Year's Eve. And then he says, and they are with their weapons in shooting position. Danny orders Gad back from the observation point. The rest of the team were to finish moving the final boats off the beach, he adds, while he and one other agent would confront the advancing soldiers. I must say it was cool. It was keeping his senses. All of the Zodiacs have left the beach, except one. 16 boats, minus one. The last boat was stuck. Ruby is leading the Zodiacs out of the cove. The radio sparks into life again. Oh my God, it's going to be a massacre now. Along the beach, Gad is still trying to move the last boat off the sand. I looked back on the beach, it was like a scene from a World War II movie where the Gestapo is rounding up French resistance fighters, you know? And Danny and I think it was five more of our people standing with hands up. Gad radios Ruby. Where is your weapon? I said, I don't have a weapon. Before approaching the soldiers, Danny radios the Navy SEALs commander. I'm going to stall them. If something happens, don't shoot unless I'm dead or I give you permission to shoot. And I uh, trusted him totally and he trusted me. Danny approaches the soldiers. And they shouted in Arabic, stop or we will kill you, shoot you. Even at this point, Danny somehow manages to keep his sense of humor. My doctor inclines himself towards me and he whispers in my ear, shall we take them on? <laughs> we are three and they are 40. And I said, no, not yet. <laughs> but it was funny, you know. Behind him, Danny sees that the last boat is still stuck on the beach. And so does one of the soldiers. He started running towards the boat with his gun, with his Kalachnikov ready to shoot. Immediately, Danny runs with him. He came to the shore, to the water edge. The boat was to our right, I don't know, maybe 25, 30, 40 meters, something like that. And then he saw the other boats, and you could see the fog the engines made. So before I could do anything, he shot a full uh, burst from his hip. Ruby, meanwhile, is watching everything offshore with the Navy SEAL commander, who leans into him and says, Oh, the smell of gunfire. I am fired up. I am ready for action. Somehow, the soldier hit no one. They missed. 
The last boat, when they heard the gunfire, suddenly were up in the air like a flying source and boom to the sea. Danny jumps on the soldier, wrestling him to the ground. Someone hit me with the back of the rifle on my head. I was a bit fuzzy, but uh, still uh, conscious. Getting up, Danny realizes the soldiers still don't know what they've stumbled on. They saw a lot of people on the beach, but in a moonless night, you see people. You cannot really say what is the color of their skin. On a moonless night, of course not. Everyone is dark, right? Danny shouts at the officer. What are you doing? We are from the resort. We are diving here. Then he stops the officer in his tracks. I mentioned the name of the admiral. And then, you know, with a very primitive Arabic, I explained to him that uh, fish, lobsters, we go under the water, you know, it can only be done by night. We're catching the general's weekly lobster, Danny explains. I said, well, you know him? I said, of course I know him. He's a very good friend. Yesterday I was in his office. Immediately, the platoon is at ease. The commander orders them to retreat off the beach. Danny says he's going straight to the general to complain. And I went to Port Sudan looking. I knew where the officers lived. Arriving at the house of the general's deputy in the dead of night, Danny feigns outrage at what has happened. I had the real dry blood on my head. I had prepared in my mind a very aggressive speech. You know, when you are attacked, you, I mean, the best defense is attacking, so... I said, look, I came here to tell you that I am packing, taking my team, and I'm leaving this resort. We cannot continue working like this. It's too dangerous, and I cannot put my tourists in danger. Embarrassed, the deputy pleads with Danny not to leave. The next morning, they meet with the general himself, the man they served fresh lobster every week. Apologizing, he says the beach will be off-limits to all Sudanese soldiers, asking Danny to reconsider. He even gives them an official permit, stating that they are operating under the general's auspices. Arriving back at the resort, though, even Danny couldn't keep the episode quiet. The Bat Galim had reported back to headquarters. The order came, as I thought, to abandon, and I said, if we do that, we cannot come back. At first, Danny ignores the order, directly disobeying the head of the Mossad, Yitzhak Hoffi. As a former army officer, though, Danny was happy to live with the consequences. It's not the army, and they don't shoot you because you disobeyed field conditions. Sensing he needs to get Hoffi back on side, though, Danny soon realizes he must follow the order. And then I gathered the team and I said, look, I'm planned to go back to Israel and try to convince the chief that things are okay. Arriving back in Israel, Danny meets with Hoffi. Explaining the situation, he implores Hoffi to continue the operation. Malaria and dysentery was now killing Jews every day, while some had been exposed to the Sudanese police by fellow refugees. We must continue, he says and the resort still offers a perfect cover. General Hoffi, he was the leader that could accept that he was wrong and do it openly. 
And he changed his own decision and uh, he said, okay, you can continue. Simultaneously, Hoffi puts both an official reprimand and a citation in Danny's file. He had disobeyed a direct order from the chief, but he was right to do so. Danny Limor was a little bit troublemaker. This is one of the reasons he was chosen for the job. But there's a change of plan. Sea evacuations were now deemed too risky, and Hoffi had spoken to the head of the Israeli Air Force, who had offered to help. From now on, the Ethiopian Jews were to be airlifted out of the desert. Danny returned to the resort, which by now is becoming a booming venture. In a very short time, the uh, village really became a success story and started making money which caused a problem to the uh, Mossad accountant who had to explain to uh, the uh, Ministry of Finance how come that there is more money now in the uh, cashier's office than there was before. The Mossad even funded a marketing campaign for the resort. Adventure a la carte was the headline, below pictures of young men and women walking on an idyllic beach. This lagoon is like National Geographic. Pelicans, flamingos, herons, with some mangroves. With the air now the escape route, the team found and vetted a Second World War landing strip just inland from Port Sudan. It was used by the RAF in Second World War to launch aerial attacks against the Italian Air Force. The idea was presented to Prime Minister Begin, who approved the operation. The mission was a go, with the first airborne evacuation taking place in May 1982. The first stage of the plan was the same as before. Collect the Jews from Gadaref camp and convoy back toward the coast. But instead of loading them onto Zodiac dinghies, a Hercules C-130 military plane would be waiting for them. But first, however, it had to land, which meant lighting up the runway with the lorry's headlights. I remember it was completely quiet, and then you hear some kind of a noise. And all of a sudden, something huge, dark, flies maybe 10 meters above your head. Lands on the street, it has to reverse its propellers to make a short stop cloud of dust. We were sure it could have been seen in Khartoum. The back of the Hercules opens. Several Israeli special forces march out, illuminating the scene with green stick lights. Within 15 minutes, some 200 Ethiopian Jews were on board and in the air. The pilot was the same man who had picked up the first of the Beta Israel back in 1976 under the secret agreement between Ethiopia and Israel. It was a huge success because it was a short, efficient operation and the OK was given. We continued this. The team complete a second airlift six days later, evacuating nearly 200 more Jews. But then, an event thousands of miles away appended the mission. On June 3rd, 1982, Palestinian gunmen shot the Israeli ambassador to the UK. In response, three days later, Israel invaded neighboring Lebanon to destroy Palestinian guerrilla positions. 
the Israeli Air Force were pulled off Operation Brothers to fight in what became known as the First Lebanon War. Danny, a reservist paratrooper, goes to the front line himself. And I went to my unit. I did some fighting there. We were on the eastern side of uh, Lebanon, so in front of us was the Syrian army, Syrian commandos, and so on. And so, again, the operation stalled. Gad and Ruby stayed at the resort to maintain its cover while the war raged. By the September, however, the Palestinians had agreed to pull out of Lebanon and Danny returned to Israel. There, headquarters allow the operation to resume while a new landing site is selected, much closer to Gadaref. The new landing site was risky, however. It meant going 500 kilometers into Sudanese airspace. Now, the weight of danger goes more to the Air Force because those pilots, they penetrated at very low altitude and without any lights to avoid the radars and the missiles. Given the risk of detection, everything would have to be done much faster than previously. Landing to takeoff couldn't last much longer than 10 minutes. So Danny and the team did intense training with the C-130 squadrons in the Negev desert, perfecting the evacuation maneuvers. By late spring, Operation Brothers recommenced and the team were back in Sudan. On June 10th, 1983, another C-130 plane was in the air, headed for the country. But soon, there's a problem. The committee men are delayed in rounding up the Jews for evacuation. The secret police have heightened security at the camps, scaring some of the refugees into staying inside. Danny knows that the plane will not delay landing, nor wait longer than planned on the sand. Once you penetrate Sudanese airspace, you cannot uh, turn around and wait until the, the people come. So if you're not on time, then it goes back empty. Radioing the pilot, Danny says he doesn't have enough time to fire up the covert light that only the plane could detect. So I'm talking to the pilot, he said, No, I have to land. So go to the beginning of the strip, turn your car into the direction where I have to land, and light your full uh, lights from the car. In the rush, though, the committee have not been able to brief the Jews on what would happen, which was more of a risk than it sounds. None of them had ever used electricity before, let alone knew what an aeroplane was. Watching a C-130 effectively drop over their heads into the desert was asking for trouble. But there's no time. The plane is about to do just that. I've been in many situations in the army and so on, but sitting in a car when this monster passes over your head, maybe several meters, not much, because he landed immediately after. That's something that you, you have nightmares. Within the chaos, panic erupts. They ran away. The team ran after them. Everyone was looking for Jews behind the rocks and the, even the pilot and all the airplane crew and the commando soldiers and us, all of us looking for Jews and bringing them inside the plane. With every minute that passes, the risk of exposure grows. 
The first flight that we did, the plane was on land from touching to disengaging about average of 12 minutes. But that night, the plane was there for maybe 45 minutes. Eventually, each of the Jews are swept up and hauled into the plane. So I gave the pilot a sign that he could take off and took off. At that moment, another of the Jews approaches Danny out of the darkness. Pointing to the sky and saying, the big bird took her son. And uh, so we we were stuck with an old lady. Throughout 1980 to 1984, Danny and Faraday's original escape route of flying Jews out on refugee visas was still operational. The next morning, Danny arranged a passport for the women, who landed in Israel several days later. Happy with the result of the airlift, the Air Force upped the ante. They thought if one plane could make the trip, why not another? The plan was agreed, and in the October, two C-130s landed in the Sudanese desert and collected their cargo. But while it was the start of a new step in the operation, it also marked the end of another. After nearly five years running Operation Brothers in the field, Danny Lamour was tired. During his time in Sudan, he had found Faraday a clump, improvised several separate evacuation routes, been imprisoned, started a professional diving resort, and all the while, rescued several thousand Ethiopian Jews. He was one of those guys who, if you threw him through the door, he came back from the window. If you threw him from the window, he came back from the chimney. If you threw him from the chimney, he came back from the cellar. And if he had to face a wall, he would knock his head on the wall and the wall would come down. Offered a new mission within the Mossad, Danny accepted and wished his team luck. Thanks to him, Operation Brothers now had an effective system to rescue the Jews. The naval evacuations resumed and airlifts were stepped up. At one point, three C-130 Hercules planes made the trip. I think there was one night that we were the busiest airport in Sudan. But by late 1984, the Mossad terminated Operation Brothers after another near miss during an airlift. They didn't leave the rest of the Jews to their fate, however. Sensing an opportunity with President Nameri and with pressure from the Americans, Israel negotiated the secret evacuations of the remaining refugees in a separate operation, codenamed Moses. The remaining Operation Brothers team abandoned the diving resort in 1985 and evacuated the country. They even left a note on the desalination system for the advancing Sudanese soldiers. It read, This is the contribution of Israel to the well-being of Sudan. In all, over 7,000 Ethiopian Jews were rescued through Operation Brothers. Another 4,000 died, either trying to reach the camps or in them. For Rafi Berg, the Middle East editor at the BBC, Danny Lamour is the main reason so many Beta Israel did reach the Promised Land. If it wasn't for Danny's own extraordinary judgment, his decision-making and his chutzpah, 
this operation would never have been accomplished in the way that it was. Throughout the operation, Danny was guided by one simple question. What is the purpose of our existence under the sun? He remained in the Mossad for many more years, taking on missions all over the world. But for him, rescuing the Beta Israel was always more than just a mission. In Israel, you have people coming from, I don't know, maybe a hundred countries. And for me, I realized that this uh, mosaic is part of our strength, of our uh, history, of our uh, tradition. To Kelly McConan, one of the younger committee men, is now part of that tradition in Israel itself, having been evacuated by Danny in 81. And I land to Ben Gurion Airport. I cry a lot. I kiss the ground. And thanks God, the prayer of my grandfather brought me to my life country, Israel. It's freedom. You don't imagine what does it mean freedom. In Israel, Tekeli got to know Faraday Klum, the man whose telegram back in 1978 sparked the entire operation. Faraday is a visionary. If he's determined to do something, he did it. He didn't speak a lot, and his courage, he, he don't imagine, and uh, will keep his dynasty. Faraday Aklam died in 2009 while in Addis Ababa. Upon hearing the news, Danny arranged for a Mossad jet to repatriate his body to Israel, free of charge. He was not an easy man. I also was not an easy man, but the association of what he brought and what I brought, that was meaningful. Together, we could do things that separately we probably would not have been able to do. For the rest of the true spies in Operation Brothers, it was the mission of a lifetime. This operation was run like a Wild West story, and it was done so purposely. This was one of the highlights of the operation being run by Danny. There was not one single paragraph in the book of how to run a clandestine operation which was not broken by purpose, because it was the only way. This is Sudan, it's different. We'll risk it, we'll do it. My personal experience will remain with me till the day I die. In the 1970s, there were only a handful of Ethiopian Jews living in Israel. Today, there are over 140,000. I'm so lucky it's happened in my generation. The praying of 2,700 years, I accomplished that dream. I'm Sofia DiMartino. If you'd like to learn more about Operation Brothers, you're in luck. Over on Spyscape Plus, our subscriber-only channel, you'll find two bonus episodes on the Beta Israel and the Red Sea Diving Resort, full of fascinating detail that we weren't able to pack into these episodes. Spyscape Plus is available via Apple Podcasts and spyscape.com forward slash podcasts. Join us in our next episode for some old-time glamour as we uncover a secret history of spies in showbiz. We're heading back to the dangerous days of the Vietnam War with unofficial MI6 agent and world-renowned author Graham Greene. Only on True Spies. 
Disclaimer. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the subject. These stories are told from their perspective, and their authenticity should be assessed on a case-by-case basis.